Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my lovely Betwixters. How are you? It's so nice to see you here. I am really glad that we can make this time each week to sit down and converse about historical smut. I have an absolute whale of a time and today is no different. But before we're allowed to get going, just in case you wandered in here by mistake, in case you saw Betwixt the Sheets and think that this is a podcast about soft furnishings, I have to give you your fair dues warning. Here it is. This is an adult podcast spoken by adults to other adults about adulty things in an adulty way, covering a range of adult subjects and you should be an adult too. Whew. Today we are getting a bit saucy today because we are talking about the erotic verse of none other than Robbie Burns, absolute legend and smut peddler. Here we go. Keep a low profile, Betwixters. We have managed to infiltrate one of the many 18th century gentlemen's clubs in Scotland. Keep stum, we're going to be fine, they won't rumble us. I really hope that my disguise is up to scratch here. But this is no ordinary club though, as it is the Bachelors Club, founded in 1780 by hot new young poet Robert Burns, or Rabbi to his pals. They're a rowdy bunch as well. Rabbi, who was born and raised on a farm, is absolutely milking his working class origins for all they are worth and the upper classes are lapping it up. He is even standing there talking to the Scottish hoi polloi in dirty boots. What a scallywag, what a rebel. At this first meeting, he is unanimously elected president for the night, with rules drawn up. I am particularly taking note of rule number 10. Every man proper for a member of this society must have a frank, honest, open heart above anything dirty or mean and must be a professed lover of one or more of the female sex. I think they've rumbled us yet. <laughs> well, before they do, that just about sets the tone for what you're about to hear. What do you look for in a man? Oh, money, of course. <laughs> You're supposed to rise when an adult speaks to you. I make perfect copies of whatever my boss needs by just turning a knob and pushing the button. Yes, social courtesy does make a difference. Goodness, what beautiful time. Goodness has nothing to do with it, dearie. Welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society with me, Kate Lister. 
at this time of year, a few of you may be preparing your haggis, peeling those neeps and tatties, and maybe even rehearsing a verse or two. Because the 25th of January is Burns Night, an annual celebration of the most beloved Scottish bard. I suspect most of you will know Old Lang Syne, but do you know the bawdy side of Burns? A lot of women did. The sexual, provocative, barbed and satirical side of Burns. It's a fascinating aspect to his work and it's essential to understanding who this charismatic man really was. He wasn't just being rude for rude's sake. This is being rude with style. Joining me is Pauline Mackay, author of Burns for Every Day of the Year. She's also a lecturer of Robert Burns' study at the University of Glasgow and a specialist on the bawdy side of his work. I mean, honestly, who better to be telling us about this? I am ready to find out more if you are. So hello and welcome to Betwixt the Sheets. It's only Pauline Mackay. How are you doing? Well, thank you. Delighted to be here today. I am thrilled that you are here because I can't believe that we haven't covered Robbie Burns before when he is such an obvious, slutty, juicy, erotic, lovely, naughty poet and we haven't done him before. So you are the perfect person to talk to because you have studied his naughtier poems, haven't you? Absolutely. So I have been particularly focused for a number of years now on Burns's suppressed works and not least those body songs included in the Merry Muses of Caledonia. How did you come to be interested in that? I mean, the obvious answer to that is because they're amazing. But if you had to give like a more of an academic answer, what was it that led you to study Robert Burns and in particular his suppressed erotic works? So one of the things that's always fascinated me about Burns was that he was just 37 years old when he died. And He lived and died young. He wrote hundreds of amazing poems, songs, letters. He enjoyed this iconic international literary fame all through the 19th, 20th into the 21st centuries. And I loved his work, but I was keen to understand some of the material that was less well known. And when I looked into Burns's canon, it became clear to me, and this was a couple of decades ago, that the body element of his literature was really, really important because it informed some of his most famous works. But because it had been suppressed right up until the 1960s, it hadn't really been fully dealt with in scholarship. It hadn't been fully brought into the light. And that's when I began researching Burns's Baudry and made it my mission to trace just about every piece of Baudry through his correspondence and to begin the incredible jigsaw of trying to put together Together, the really complicated textual history of his sexually explicit works. I love that. So when we're talking about something as being bawdy, I've used that word repeatedly. What is it that you mean by that? Is that sort of one of the nicer academic ways of being like the mucky stuff? Well, no, it's an interesting question. And I've been asked before, you yourself know, Kate, the terminology around sexually explicit and erotic literature is 
quite contentious mm -hmm. and it's deployed in all sorts of fascinating ways. Baudry, to me, is sexually explicit verse, but it has an almost a kind of comic or satirical intent I love in that. most cases. But most importantly, it's the term Burns himself used. And I can give you a really good example of that, if you would like. Please. So in Burns's correspondence... In 1789, he writes to Robert Maxwell, who was the provost of Loch Mabin. And actually, what I would say is that Burns, he liked to flatter people by sending them body songs and verse. Sometimes it was, oh, you're open-minded like I am. Sometimes it's because he had this really interesting network of cronies and he was very kind of plugged into homosocial culture and to club culture. So we see him sending it to people that we mightn't necessarily expect him to. So to the provost of Loch Mabin, he writes, to make the matter short, I shall betake myself to a subject ever fertile of themes, a subject, the turtle feast of the sons of Satan and the delicious secret sugar plum of the babes of grace, a subject sparkling with all the jewels that wit can find in the minds of genius and pregnant with all the stores of learning from Moses and Confucius to Franklin and Priestley. In short, may it please your lordship, I intend to write body, exclamation mark. I love that that sugar plum bit. That just sounds so yeah. rich and he's really drawing on the senses there. That just sounds delicious. Like that's something you just want to bite into. Yeah, because he's so creative with it. Mm. He does engage with this genre in a really creative way. And as I've said, it's, it's influential. He recognises that it's a useful tool. It's a useful mm. tool for satire. He recognises that it's an interesting way to interrogate relationships between men and women. And it's, he enjoys it in a convivial and social space as well. But I think the thing for me from that is that he also recognises that Baudry's been around for a long, long time. Yes. And we need to remember Burns is plugging into a sort of European tradition of body song and verse and literature there would have been a huge oral tradition of this stuff excuse the the pun is now <laughs> lost it is lost to us completely so i was gonna ask you what were robbie burns's influences when it comes to this stuff because i'm going to assume that he didn't just randomly decide i'm going to be the one to write body stuff he will have been influenced by other writing but do we have any sense of who he was reading aha uh -huh. so i've found some really interesting examples here so as i said burns is really interested in baudry as a satirical tool and anti-clerical and anti-monarchic baudry was very current in the late 18th century around about the time of the French Revolution, and certainly in the lead up to it. And he's, he's quite interested in this. He seems to be reading around it, and he's certainly trying it out for himself. So the, the song that he actually sends to the provost of Loth Mabin is a song called The Case of Conscience, and it's a very explicit religious satirical song. And we discovered that, in fact, Burns, in the days leading up to writing that, had been reading a collection of songs called Chansons Joyeuses by the French writer Charles Colley. And it's a song whereby a woman who's experiencing uncomfortable sexual desire 
visits her minister in the Scottish version and expresses this. And he says, well, don't worry, here's your penance. And he helps her with it. I bet he does. And of course... In Charles Colley's version, it's called Ronde. It's very similar, though it's, it's the Catholic priest. And so Barnes seems to transpose and translate this into a version that's more satirical of the Scottish mm. kirk. But another one is that the first ever body song that Barnes writes is a song called My Girl, She's Airy. And he enters it in his first commonplace book in 1784. And he moves through the song and he kind of describes this woman in increasingly, well, no, sorry, maybe decreasingly complimentary <laughs> terms, but he begins at the top of her body and he moves his way down. <laughs> now, when I read this, I think you're going to know where the influence is. Okay. My girl, she's airy, she's buxom and gay. Her breath is as sweet as the blossoms in May. A touch of her lips, it ravishes quite. She's always good-natured, good-humoured and free. She dances, she glances, she smiles with a glee. Her eyes are the lightnings of joy and delight. Her slender neck, her handsome waist, her hair well buckled or stays well laced, her taper-light leg with an E-T and a C. For her, A-B-E-D and her, C-U-N-T. And oh, for the joys of a long winter's night. So we see that he's very interested in other authors' body sensibilities. And we see the intertextuality in some of Barnes's work. Wow. I've been so desperate to race ahead to the body stuff that I haven't even asked you who who Robbie Burns was. <laughs> there might be people <laughs> listening to this going, going, what's happening? Who is this person? So just for anyone listening to this going, um, I'm not sure who this person is, actually. Can you give us a bit of a background, Tim, and how he ended up being the most famous Scottish poet? And I can't believe he was only 37 when he died. I was sure he was older yeah. than that, but he packed so much in. But where did he come from? So Robert Burns is the world-famous Scottish national bard. He was born in Alloway in Ayrshire in 1759, and he was the son of farmer William Burness, who had come down from the northeast of Scotland. Robert and his brother Gilbert adopted Burns, the southern variant of the name, just in case that's confusing for people. And though the farming life was difficult, though Burns was very much... Um, he was working hard in the family farms all through his young life. His father was very, very concerned with his education. And he made sure that Burns did receive an education that wasn't necessarily typical of someone in, from his background. So he was very, very well read from a young age and exhibited, I think, a certain talent for writing and authorship also from his early years. So... By the time he gets into his teens, early 20s, he's proven a little bit problematic already. He likes female company. Mm. He's had a few illicit extramarital affairs. And these lead him into some problems, which we might discuss later. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, he has pulled together a collection of poems. And he himself has had these published in what's now referred to as the Kilmarnock edition. This was published in 1786 and it's called Poems Chiefly in the Scottish Dialect. And this met with such critical acclaim. The Edinburgh Literati loved it. Um, Henry Mackenzie, a major literary figure of the 18th century in Scotland, declared that Burns was the heaven-taught ploughman. And so Burns then went over to Edinburgh 
where he was lionised by middle to upper class Edinburgh society. Everybody wanted Burns at their dinner table. And he prepared for another publication of his works, the Edinburgh edition, which came out in 1787. And it was here that he became a member of the Krakal and Fensibles. And he began more earnestly to collect and compose and to circulate body song and verse. Mm. However, he, he couldn't quite make a living out of the poetry. And when he left Edinburgh, after taking a few tours of Scotland, he took up another farm called Ellisland in Dumfriesshire. He built the farmhouse himself. He moved his young family there. Another really difficult farm. He struggled to break the land. And he'd made inroads with patrons that he'd met in Edinburgh to become a government exciseman. And eventually he did, and he moved to Dumfriesshire. And in the latter years of his life, he was, of course, an exciseman. So he had a really, really varied literary career and other career and all of this in 37 short years. I knew that he was the son of a farmer and that he'd grown up on a farm and that's always amazed me about this character because class still affects us to this very day, still incredibly difficult. We know this for working class kids to get into the red brick institutions, your Oxford, your Cambridges, your Edinburgh, all of that stuff. But in the 18th century, how a young lad working on a farm managed to break into this. I have no idea at all. How did that even happen? I think it was sheer talent and charisma. (laughs) He has a lot of that. Yeah. And I think the contemporary accounts of Burns and the reception of his poetry, it was the talent, it was the breadth of topics that he covered. It was his ability to use language in both English and Scots. And certainly it was people's reception of his work and of him. And he seems to have been really quite a remarkable and charismatic it must have been and so he writes in the scots dialect which is absolutely gorgeous and amazing i don't know if you've ever seen it one of my favorite subcategories on twitter is scottish twitter and just it's just amazing people still writing in the scottish dialect about the most funny i i, I love it he would have been amazing on twitter but had that been done before robbie burns came up were people writing in the scott dialect or was he one of the first to do it Absolutely not, no. So Robert Burns is drawing on a very, very long tradition of writing in Scots that goes right back to the medieval era and it spans right up until now in the 21st century. So there's a huge amount of literature in Scots poetry prose. There's a huge amount of Scots song passed down, as you mentioned before, through the oral tradition. And Burns was very, very much tapped into that. He did a huge amount also to preserve that through his own activities as a collector of Scottish song. But he certainly wasn't in a vacuum when he was writing in Scots. Wow. Do you think that the fact that he was a farmer added to his appeal sometimes because occasionally the upper classes they do love to kind of pretend that they're working class there's a certain authenticity somehow to it and a kind of especially the 18th century when there was all this noble savage stuff swirling around was the fact that he was yeah did that play into it for them it did and do you know i think he played to it as well Mm. So he crafted such 
an interesting persona and he plays a lot on his supposed sort of rusticity mm. in the prefaces to his volumes of poetry and he plays up to this idea that he's the heaven top plowman and there's a story that Burns when he went to Edinburgh rather than completely comply with the bourgeois you know fashion of the middle to upper class that he was going round all the kind of dinner parties in the drawing rooms in his boots <laughs> I love that. Yeah, he harnessed it mm. to really mm. good sort of creative effect, but he also used it as a sort of promotional tool. Strong work, yeah. So he would have been like hobnobbing with the elites of Edinburgh. Was he the gentleman's club, the image of the gentleman's club? They were very big in the 18th century. How was he in that world? Who was he hobnobbing it with? Yes, Barnes was very clubbable. Clubbable is a word clubbable. that's been used to describe, and I really love that, actually. He was very <laughs> clubbable. And Barnes himself actually started um, the Turbolton Bachelors Club in his youth. And when he goes to Edinburgh, he's introduced to the Kirkallan Fencibles, which is essentially a drinking, a gentleman's right. drinking club. And it's thought that he was introduced to this club by William Smelly. William Smelly was his printer, and he was also the first editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, it's believed that the Kirkallan Fencibles really had quite a remarkable middle to upper class society membership, though their records are not <laughs> fully intact or discoverable, and it's believed that they were destroyed. Right. I think that might have been the case. Particularly late 18th century, the government becomes quite nervous about clubs, no matter what their kind of mm. activities were, and we do start to see the clubs disbanding and records disappearing and so on and so forth so we can't say for certain but definitely he's interacting with middle to upper class society in Edinburgh when he's there and through these gentlemen's clubs and we can see the network of patrons and cronies that he develops through that in his latter correspondence. I would love to have had Robbie Burns at my club like I can see what you mean by clubbable, <laughs> like just to have had him turn up and then you'd be like, well, give us a poem, give us a song. It would have been like, he's, he's still got that mystique about him, doesn't he? Like you'd love to have him turn up at your house party. It's the conviviality that he's famous for. And that's in part why we have the Bound Supper. That's why God, yes. the Bound yeah. Supper becomes this worldwide annual celebration, 25th of January every year, Burns Night, the anniversary of his birth so it's Burns's perceived conviviality mm. and the way that his work actually feeds into this that's made the Burns Supper so very popular and widespread. I'll be back with Pauline and Rabbi after this short break. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He's very young. He is very a bit of rough, but also, you know, a diamond in the rough, this heaven sent plow poet or whatever that was. But he's also writing very, very <laughs> rude and naughty things. Can I ask, was there a wife in this? Was there a Mrs. Burns somewhere of just like, Jesus, he's off to the clubs again in those bloody boots? And was, <laughs> was, <laughs> what was his personal life? Barnes's personal life is colourful. Mm. It's colourful um, from a young age. So Barnes's first child was born to a farm worker called Elizabeth Payton, ah. who Barnes had a relationship with right. when he was very young, when he was living in Ayrshire. Around 1784, 85, so he's early 20s. Young. She gives birth to a child called Elizabeth and Barnes refers to her as dear bought Bess, and she inspires a poem called A Poet's Welcome to His Love Begotten Daughter. Oh. And he actually comes under some quite significant censure by the Kirk Session for this. Oh. People in Scotland who had extramarital sex or who were adulterous or who committed any of these perceived moral sins were often sentenced to a spell on the cutty stool where they would be publicly rebuked in church on Sunday. And Burns and Elizabeth Payton were publicly rebuked. But we see a real defiance because he's like, do you know what? This child is so important. It's so loved. And that's more important. And actually, it's thought that that's around the time we wrote My Girl, She's Airy. And he also writes another body song at that point in time called The Fornicator. And really, it's very, very fine in the face of over-determined religious orthodoxy. And then he later meets Jean Armour. And Jean Armour is the woman who would become Burns's wife. Right. But that was not straightforward either. So Burns and Jean Armour... They are obviously very attracted to one another. And before long, she is pregnant with twins. Oh, wow. They're not married. 
Okay. But it's believed that they contracted an irregular marriage, which was quite common in Scotland in the 18th century, and that Burns presented her with a paper that sort of pledged himself to her, or that they exchanged a paper pledging themselves to one another. However, when her parents discovered that she was pregnant and that Rab Mosgiel was the father, they were incensed, absolutely furious. And it's believed that her father destroyed what Burns would eventually call his unlucky paper. So destroyed it. And Burns was yet again told that he would be publicly rebuked in the Kirk for this. But he was permitted to stand in his own pew because he explained the circumstances to the minister. Burns was heartbroken by this. He did want to be with Jean Armour and to be married. She was sent away to Paisley to have her children away from the prying eyes of the locals. And this is at this point in time, Burns makes plans to emigrate to the West Indies. And he contemplates taking up a position as a clerk on a sugar plantation. Partly this is because Jean Armour's father has taken out a writ against him. So he's having to move around. He's transferred his belongings into other family members' names. And he's having to move around the houses of friends to avoid imprisonment. So he doesn't want to leave the country, but it's, it's just a way out of a very difficult situation. And he's really dejected and heartbroken and he writes some quite powerful letters criticising Jean's parents. Just as he's about to go, the Kilmarnock edition is so successful and he decides to go to Edinburgh instead. So Jean Armour, she gave birth to the twins. Many of their children sadly died in infancy and um, Burns and Jean seem to have maintained their relationship but when he goes to Edinburgh he strikes up this really intense correspondence with a woman called Agnes McElhose and they write to one another using the noms de Moore, Sylvander and Clarinda sometimes more than once in any given day wow. and it's this relationship that results in one of Burns's most famous love songs A Fond Kiss. Agnes McElhose was a middle-class woman. She was separated from her husband and she was living under the care of a family member. So she was in quite a difficult position Mm. for a woman in the 18th century. And she's at pains to make sure that her and Burns' relationship is perceived as being very proper. And there are letters where she advises on um, how she should visit him. God, messy this, isn't it? It's very, it's messy. And they definitely have some meetings mm. where they're not chaperoned. And there's a lot of speculation about what might have happened in those meetings. And you do see expressions of angst or remorse in their letters following this. But there's no sense of how far that relationship progressed physically. But they were emotionally seemingly very, very invested in one another. Mm. However, by the time Burns leaves Edinburgh, Jean Armour's pregnant with another set of twins. His set of twins, again, in between writing these erotic letters to Agnes, he's managed to... Oh, Robbie. Yes, correct. But when he leaves Edinburgh, he does marry Jean Armour. Oh, okay. In the interim, he receives communication from Edinburgh that Jenny Clough, who was Agnes McElhose's maid is also pregnant with Barnes's child. Oh, no. And he has to send support to Edinburgh for 
Jenny Clow's <gasps> child as well. So he, he had a very, very complicated love life. Jean Armour was his wife. That was the relationship that endured. Right. And in fact, there was another extramarital relationship later on, which results in another kind of slightly body but unbelievable love song. Yesterday, I had a pint of wine. But he had at least 12 children with at least five women. God, how so, fertile yeah. is this man? My <laughs> God! I mean, I, I can understand why Joan's dad would be so... If he's already been someone that was forced to stand up in church and then everyone goes, boo, you getting wee lassies pregnant out. And then his daughter is like, oh, yeah, it was him. Did he have any sense of like personal reflection on this? Is there any poem that he wrote where he was like, I really should stop knocking women up? (laughs) What we do see in Burns's poetry and his song and his correspondence is that he recognises that humanity is imperfect and that there are appetites there that make it very, very difficult to live up to the ideals of society or the church. And he seems certainly to think about it and to express his thoughts, his opinions on that. But at the same time, he talks about passions that lead him astray and and I think that he's just perilous to resist do you know what though Pauline like I'm being very judgmental about him but I think I would have shagged him to be completely <laughs> honest like he was <laughs> oh. he's quite a good looking fellow wasn't he like it's a lethal combination he's good looking he's young he'll have a, a nice farmer's body and he's very smart and very charismatic that's lethal yeah, certainly. The portraits and contemporary accounts would have suggested that not only was he charismatic, that it, that he was very attractive. Mm. Um, I resist saying that. People ask me a lot, but I've so far got away with, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, but, but good for you. <laughs> so do you... He loves a lot of women. That's we, we can definitely say that. And he seems to have been loved in return. But do you think that he genuinely did... He was in lust with them, but was there any, like, great love of his life, a woman that, in for your money, that, like, this person was the one that he really loved? I believe, actually, that Jean Armour must have been the love of his life because mm. there was so much difficulty surrounding that relationship and they had so many trials and there were these difficulties not only with parents and with society and with the local religious police, but they returned to one another time and time again. Yeah. And certainly Jean, their relationship absolutely sustained even through Burns's dalliances it's so tragic. Jean Armour wasn't at Barnes's funeral because she was giving birth to his last child. Oh, that is sad. Oh, my goodness. But certainly they seem to have had a strong relationship in spite of all of this. The other mythologised figure in Barnes's life was, of course, Highland Mary or Mary Campbell. And we see Highland Mary actually more commemorated even than Jean Armour in the 19th century in statues. And she really, really captures people's imagination. Burns is thought to have had a relationship with her around about just after these difficulties, the first sort of set of difficulties with Jean, just after Jean's been sent to Paisley. And they're believed to have exchanged Bibles, again, betrothing themselves to one another. And he asks her, supposedly to go to the West Indies with him. And there's a song, Will You Go to the Indies, My Mary. Right. And she goes to make plans to immigrate with him. 
she goes back to Greenock where she contracts a fever and she dies before he's even heard of it or before he can get to her. And he writes to Mary in heaven. And we see repeated references to her, maybe, you know, four mm. or five in his correspondence that show that he thinks about her, you know, on and off in the years that follow that. So he certainly seems to have been taken with Highland Mary for a time. And that relationship was very much mythologised throughout the 19th century, mm. but it was perceived as quite a chaste relationship. We might consider that actually this was maybe more extensible, more, yes. more sort of acceptable for bourgeois society and we've got the Scottish National Bard and his tragic lost Highland Mary and it was very emotive. Yes that's much nicer isn't it than him just running around impregnating women. <laughs> yeah but it was again it was it was a relatively fleeting affair. Oh was it? So it's Jean Armour for me. Jean Armour all the way. Jean Armour all the way. <laughs> Teen Jean. If, if we're thinking about his body verses, which you study, and Lord knows that the man has got enough practice in real life to be drawing upon, how, when he published this verse, how was it received at the time? Was it edited out? Did he try and get it published or was it just written on the sly? Absolutely not. Burns... He wrote this for a very trusted group of <gasps> right. male cronies. This was very much part of the homosocial club culture that Burns enjoyed. He never envisaged that this would be published. And we see that when he sends it to people, he says, oh, keep this under your hat. So oh that's God. been one of the problems, actually, in terms of provenance, in terms of the attribution of some of the body song and verse. What we see in the Merry Muses of Caledonia is that it's probably a book that's been composed through the, either the records of the Kirkallan Fensibles or through songs being passed down orally. Some of them are definitely by Burns, and we can see this from his holographs, from his correspondence. Some we know he collected because he refers to them. Others, absolutely not by him. And the uncertainty around this means that the Merry Muses of Caledonia through the 19th century becomes a vehicle for the publication of all sorts of bawdry. Right. And that's one of the really interesting things about studying it. But Burns doesn't help because he is very, very careful in the circulation of it. And you'll say, read this and then send it back to me. <laughs> or don't let this go out your hands. Oh, my um, God. So, no, he, he never envisaged this being published. And actually, the first time it's printed in the Merry Muses is in 1799. So it's three years after his death. It's posthumous. Wow. Is there any evidence that anyone that he sent this stuff to... Did anyone ever write back and go, Jesus, Robbie, I, I didn't need that over my breakfast. Keep it to yourself. Or did everyone did it seem to be well received? So he knew his audience. He, yes. He, he seems to have sent it to people who he knew would receive it well. There's a really nice uh, relationship that he has, though, with George Thompson. And George Thompson's the editor of a select collection of Scottish years. And in the latter years of his life, Burns was collecting songs and editing them and composing new songs for two major compendiums. One was Thompson's select collection. The other was James Johnson's Scots Musical Museum. And Thompson was quite a prudish editor. And Burns seems to really enjoy goading him. So he sends Thompson Baudry 
but he does it, he sends it with his tongue in his cheek and he seems to know that it's going to embarrass him and that there's absolutely no way that Thompson's going to publish it, but he also trusts him enough. But by and large, he wouldn't have sent it. It was potentially litigious, to be honest. There's no way he would have knowingly sent it somewhere where he wasn't guaranteed a positive or at least accepting reception. This is like the 18th century equivalent of your friend who keeps sending you filthy memes over WhatsApp and just... <laughs> <laughs> stuff that if it got out into the public would destroy your reputation but because it's your mates and kind of like you're all in the know it's somehow all right to do it it's absolutely the case <laughs> and one of the things about Burns's song collecting is sometimes he's collecting body songs and he's making them beautiful or they're, he's mm. kind of sanitizing them or cleaning them up for publication in these volumes but he doesn't always go far enough for Thompson. Mm. So we see them going back and forward to one another until Burns has cleaned the song up a lot. So the song up quite enough. I think one example of that is Let Me In This A Night. And they have an interesting conversation about whether or not the maid should in fact let the gentleman in. Oh my God, I love that. Just trying to sort of like bring it up because I could sit here and talk to you about this forever and ever, but I'm not allowed to. But Burns's reputation throughout the 19th century, so the Victorians aren't known for their love of smut. So Robbie Burns becomes this kind of heralded bard, this kind of emblem of Scottishness, and, oh, he loved Highland Mary and all this stuff. At what point were people ready to go, and he wrote absolutely filthy, mucky verses as well? Because I think that we've integrated these two things well-ish now, although maybe you would disagree, but what was that process like of having to go, oh yeah, he did write Old Lang Syne and he did write Ode to a Haggis, but he also wrote this. So we actually see right the way through the 19th century that even although this is still potentially litigious, there are multiple privately printed sort of underground publications of Barnes's body song and verse in versions of the Mary Muses of Caledonia. And sometimes the printers or publishers will use clever devices to distance themselves mm. from it. So there's a, an edition, it's the 1827 edition, but we're fairly certain it was printed in 1872. They use interesting techniques to make sure that the material is still there and it's still circulating among those who are interested in it, but they're doing it in such a way as they're unlikely to be prosecuted. So it's got currency. People are interested in it. People are always interested in it. I mean, body song and verses could be traced back again all the way through sort of Scottish cultural history to the medieval era. So it's there, it's, it's being sustained. It's Really following Lady Chatterley's lover case in the 1960s, that scholars begin to fully edit this and integrate it into scholarly editions and grapple with it mm. more extensively. And I think that over time, people have accepted that it is a really important part of Burns's creativity. Yes. And actually, if we don't acknowledge Burns's bawdry, if we don't research it if we don't um, hear it and understand it we lose something of what makes some of his most famous works mm. so effective and so popular holy willie's prayer one of burns's i mean probably his most famous religious satire is imbued with his body sensibility Tam O'Shanter is wild ride through the Ayrshire countryside that's performed at Burns Suppers all over the world and is reimagined in art and material culture 
absolutely owes a debt to Burns's body sensibility. People recognise that now. And we've discussed this colourful love life. This is something that's intrigued people for years. We need to understand the extent to which this forms part of the 360 degrees mm. aspect of Burns and his literature. He wouldn't be the bard that people celebrate today were it not for these essential components even though people might not always contemplate them as entirely palatable or historically, they might not have. I couldn't agree more because it's not just about being rude. That's not why he's done this. Is The poems themselves are so beautiful and so full of life and energy and movement and, and funny. Like there's so mm -hmm. much craft that's gone into it. You wouldn't do that just to write something to get people off. There's so much more to it and this vibrancy and life to it. Yeah, I think Burns's Baudry almost exclusively has an intellectual agenda. It's so it's smart. It's almost exclusively religious or political satire. And then the more erotic works are really, really bound up with his experiences with the opposite sex mm. and his understanding of human relationships and love. And then, as I've said, we also have this really convivial homosocial element where there is a bit of jocularity, there is a mm. bit of nudge, nudge, wink, wink of um, men entertaining themselves and one another with this material. So actually, we need to think about all of these components and we gain a lot from understanding that. Okay, final question. This isn't going to be a fair one, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> what is your favourite body verse or song by Robbie Burns? Yeah, that's a very unfair question. <laughs> I love them all. It's no, like I don't love them. I have to say, can, I, can we just scratch that? <laughs> I definitely don't love them all. Some of them are very <laughs> shocking. Um, in terms of a love song that I see kind of imbued with Burns's Baudry that also appears in the Merry Muses of Caledonia, I love Yesterday and I Had a Pint of Wine. And it's, there are two versions of this. Burns actually described this as the best love song he ever wrote. And he wrote it for a woman called Anna Park, who he had an affair with in Dumfries and she gave birth to a child and actually Jean Armour raised a child with the rest of their family. But he said, you know, it was probably the best love song he ever wrote, but in its original version, it wasn't quite a lady's song. And he said, Yestreen, I had a pint of wine, a place where body sauna. Yestreen lay on this breast of mine, the raven locks of Anna. The hungry June wilderness, rejoicing o'er his manna, was Nathan to my honey bliss upon the lips of Anna. Ye monarchs, tack the east and west for the Indus to Savannah. Gie me within my straining grasp the melting form of Anna. Then I'll despise imperial charms an empress or sultana. While dying raptures in her arms, I give and take with Anna. And it goes on. So you can see there's it's quite profound. Mm. There's a lot of euphemism in there, or there's kind of double entendre. But then in the Merry Muses, there are two additional verses. Okay. And one of them in particular has got that defiance, and it's the defiance that leads Burns to write this material. The Kirk and State may join and tell to do sick things I manna. The Kirk and State may gate to hell and I shall gate to Anna. And oh. that's actually discovered and it's in another hand, but it's so in keeping with Burns's mode in writing Baudry and in his motivation. It's so in keeping with the sentiments that we read 
in his correspondence, it's highly likely, I think, that he did write that verse. But that, for me, conflates the two. The love and the passion that he feels for these women and the enjoyment that he has in that element of humanity in relationships and sexuality, but also the defiance that he expresses. I love that. Pauline, you have been amazing to talk to. You've been such a treat. And if people want to know more about you and your work, and quite frankly, they should, where can they find you? So you can find me on X at Mackay P-A-G. And actually, um, we have a big project here at the University of Glasgow to edit Robert Burns for the 21st century. So we're doing the Oxford University Press works of Robert Burns. And this month, we're going to release a collection of 42 essays, the Oxford Handbook of Robert Burns. And I have a chapter in there on Burns and Baudry. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've loved every second of this. Oh, thank you. I'm glad we finally had this conversation. We need to have another one, and soon. (laughs) Oh, there's more. Don't worry. (laughs) Thank you for listening, and thank you so much to Pauline for joining me. Honestly, how good was she? And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, review and follow along wherever it is that you get your podcasts. If you'd like us to explore a subject or maybe you've just had a wee dram or two and you fancy dropping by to say hello, then you can email us at betwixt at historyhit.com. We have got episodes on everything from sex in ancient Rome to Dickens women with none other than Miriam Margulies all coming your way. This podcast was edited by Tom DeLaghi and produced by Stuart Beckwith. The senior producer was Charlotte Long. Join me again, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast contains music from Epidemic Sound. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.